So on Easter, we started a series called The End and the Beginning. And the meaning and the theme behind that starts in Easter because in Easter, we recognize the end of a way of conceiving of how the world worked because something happened that never happened before. A human being raised from the dead. And so that was the, the end of a certain way of being able to relate to what was possible in the world. And anytime there are ends, there are beginnings that go with it. And so we got to imagine and envision and hope for and have faith in the hope of a world that has an empty tomb. And we got to put to death the type of thinking where there's just a lot of maybes and might, coulda, and I wish it woulda type thinking. And so we started that series on Easter looking at the resurrection of Jesus and grappling with this enormous idea, just that, uh, that a man rose from the dead. And then last week, we cracked open the book of Revelation. And this, this book, Revelation, is not plural, okay? Uh, it's not revelations, because there's a lot of ideas in it. People get confused. There's a lot of, like, symbols and messages. It's actually revelation, because it's about a single idea. It's about a single fact that has occurred, and that is the recognition, the revelation of Jesus as Lord. That's, that's what the whole book is about. That's the whole revelation. It's not a secret code to, to determine when the end times are coming with a bunch of special uh, uh, decoder rings and things like that. Uh, and so last week, we looked at this idea of, of Jesus as Lord throughout the past, present, and future. We discussed even the uh, theory, Einstein's theory of relativity and how we can better imagine and grapple with and grasp this concept of Jesus as eternal Lord and Savior of our past, present, and future all at the same time. And this morning, we're looking at this text in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And the idea that we are exploring, and in fact, the title of the sermon, is in light of these things, how to get along with everyone. When I told Mandy what the title was on Tuesday, she said, how to get along with Everyone from an Enneagram 8, I'm a little skeptical. If so, if you know uh, uh, anything about the Enneagram, there's these numbers and, and eights are, are not known for getting along with everyone. So, um, but that's where we're headed this morning from this text. This is what God has laid on my mind and heart. And to begin with, as I often do, I'd like to ask you a question. The question is, do you think that human beings are inherently good or evil? Think about your answer, good or evil. That like little Oliver there and all these babies, are they born inherently 
good or evil? Different answers. Now, how you answer that question will determine how you think about the events of the past, present, and future, and what type of intervention God should have in the world. The story of Genesis, the beginning of the scripture, so we're looking at the beginning and the end, starting with the beginning here in Genesis, it tells the story of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are something different than just good or evil, they're innocent. They're innocent. They don't have the knowledge of good or evil. They only have their innocence. And so as the story goes, they grapple with good and evil by eating from the tree. And they then take that into their own hands. They lose their sense of innocence, and then it becomes on them to have to determine and decide, no longer just God, but now they are having to determine and decide because they chose to what is good and what is evil and how to live based on their own thinking, their own intuition, their own way of organizing life. And as we know, it doesn't go very well because their children start to kill each other. So it turns out there is an innocence that is lost in Genesis, but, but there's also an immediate plan that goes into place that we read in Genesis 3 for that, not the innocence of Adam and Eve to be restored, but for their potential for goodness, which is what comes after Innocence, you have a potential for good or evil, so their potential for goodness to be realized. That's the plan. So in the book of Revelation, we see the concluding of that plan. How is it that people who have lost their innocence, lost their ability to completely trust God for what is good and what is evil, how can they, out of their lost innocence, find redemption? And John's answer, his revelation, his apocalypse, which is what revelation means, to reveal, to expose, is the lordship of Jesus. I've had a lot of trouble, and I think some of it has to do with what's, liter what, what's written in the book of Revelation, just being very disturbed and uncomfortable by it. Some of it was the way that I grew up with the book of Revelation, where the Left Behind series and things like that were coming out, where they took a lot of the symbolic imagery and they tried to make it hyper-literal, and it was super scary, like locuses that have human faces, that have scorpion tails, that can torment but not kill people for five months. That's the stuff of nightmares right there. And it's in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> but what the book in its entirety, I think, and, and many scholars would agree, is trying to do is give 
people who have learned to trust and believe in a resurrected Jesus, a slaughtered lamb is the imagery that we read about and that we'll be working with today, uh, to, to give those people hope that things will be made right, that Jesus was in fact in charge and is still in charge even though he died miserably on a cross and that the industrial military complex of Rome and of America and of every other national entity that rules through fear and violence is not actually Lord and in charge of our final destinies. So John, he's writing primarily to seven churches in Asia Minor, which, uh, which is, is modern day Turkey. And what he's trying to encourage them to do is not to acquiesce, to fold under the pressure of the economics and the lordship of Caesar, of Rome. And it's extremely tempting for these Christians to do so because, because they could be killed, sure. There's not a widespread persecution going on during this time, but they could be killed, and some Christians were killed at this time. But far more so, their, their lifestyle could be affected, like the, the neighborhood that they get to live in or the jobs that they get to hold or their position in the community could be greatly impacted if they were to say out loud, he is risen, hallelujah, who's risen? Jesus, no, no Caesar's Lord, no Jesus. Oh, okay, well, you know what? I'm not gonna do business with you anymore. And you're actually not allowed in this part of town anymore. And actually like we're gonna relegate you to some form of ghetto to live in, in your whole life and your, your whole economics. And so in the book of Revelation, that's John's immediate context. He's trying to give hope to these Christians who are living with a lot of temptation to fold and to acquiesce to the empire of the day, which is Rome, which was Babylon, which was Assyria, which was whatever the empire was of that day and time. And he's trying to give them hope beyond what's happening right there in their midst that Jesus is truly Lord. Can you relate to any of that? So this is how we come to the precipice of this wild scene of worship. And John wants us to know three things in this passage. Who are the worshipers? Who are they worshiping? And why are they worshiping who they're worshiping? So when we look at the text, we see these rings of people and angels and living beings, kind of imagine it as like concentric circles getting wider and they're all worshiping and they're in unison and they're saying the same worshipful things together. And um, there's a lamb that was slain and a king on a throne that they're worshiping. And I don't wanna spend a lot of time on this because there's not really a lot of consensus 
about this, but there are some different folks or beings represented here. So there's the living creatures. They are a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Those are the four living creatures. A lot of times those are connected with the four gospels for Christians, but John is taking those guys straight from the visions of Ezekiel. So they're there. Then there's these mysterious people known as the elders. And there's 24 of them. And nobody knows exactly who they are. None of the scholars, they're like, I don't know. Like you get to that, there's all this, all this unpacking of all these symbols. And then you get to the elders and they're like, I don't know who those guys are, basically. They could, they could be this, they could be that, they could be this, they could be that. But what we know is John is like, he's doubling this really perfect, complete number of 12. So you got 12 and you double it to 24 and you get these elders here. And we know elders are people to listen to and maybe they represent some double perfect form of the, the tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, but we really don't know. He doesn't really ever explain it or tell us. And these are the people that are worshiping who's on the throne. And so in this passage, John's taking quite a bit of time to tell us about the people that are worshiping, right? He, he takes several sentences to explain the people and the beings because who you invite to the party tells you a lot about who you are. So who, who, if, if you are described as all the people around you that you spend a lot of time with, I wonder what that description would, would look or sound like. Hopefully it would be something positive and good. So what does this tell us about who's on the throne then? If who you invite to the party tells you a lot about who you are. Well, first of all, uh, in verse 13 and 14, it, they're, they're praising God, right? And they say, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Um, and it says the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And then there's also these descriptions of legions of angels and literally every creature on earth, above earth, below earth and in the sea. So in the ancient world, there was, there was like three tiers of existence. And the heavens were one, the earth was one, the sea was one, and John is connecting with all those. He's saying every single thing that is created is worshiping right now, every single thing. And you've got the four living creatures after this worship is being said and they affirm it, they said, amen the elders fell down and worshiped. So you've got the creations, the creation of all kinds, the elders, all these witnesses, and they're all worshiping, all shapes and sizes, all creatures, alligators and aardvarks and, and people and, and snails and, and, and roly-polies and, and poodles. Everything's worshiping, every single thing on heaven and earth, all the angels, they're all worshiping this slain lamb and this king on the throne. Do you know what the people of that time would have seen mimicking this on a smaller scale? They wouldn't have seen uh, uh, Jesus being worshiped that way. They would have seen Caesar being worshiped in this way. They would have seen 
the concentric circles of worshipers, they would have heard about the temples being constructed for the divinity of Caesar. They would have seen that everything was oriented around the worship of this man who through military might and power said he was the living God, that he was the image of God among them and that if you worshiped him, you would have peace. But if you crossed him or if you didn't acknowledge his divinity or his sovereignty over all the other nations and people, that you would be persecuted severely. So John is showing this image, this vision that he had to the Christians almost as a proactive way of showing them how they can nonviolently resist the empire by worship of Jesus. Have you ever thought of that idea as worship as a form of resistance against something that was ultimately evil and corrupt and could not make good on the promises of good it thought that it could? That's what John's mind is thinking about as he is writing down this vision that he had. It was actually an offensive maneuver. It's, uh, there's, there's a scholar named uh, Brian Blout and, and he talks a lot about this, but he, he brings into light for us that the word martyr, what do you think of when you think of the word martyr? What's the first word that comes to your mind? Being killed, dying, right? But in the Greek, the word martyr actually literally means a witness, a witness. And so it became conflated or combined with being killed because of what John is getting at here for these worshipers, for these followers of Jesus, that if they are to witness if they are to testify, if they are to worship this other God, this other king, King Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, that they could be killed, that they could be cut off, that they could be um, blacklisted in their community. So witnessing being the scary thing that John is calling people to do. You see, when when this book was written, if a Roman citizen was to get a hold of this letter, they would say, this dude is throwing some serious shade at us right now. Like, like we get that you're talking about Rome in all these passages. We get that you're trying to usurp our king with your king. And you are, you're, you're saying actually, you're, you're saying that there's a better way to live and to lead and to follow than what Caesar is doing. And John is asking his followers to follow in his footsteps and in the footsteps of Jesus. So why, why do we worship the Caesars of the day? Why do even us as Christians, why do I, why, why do I say hard things about our country because as much as I love certain things about certain leaders, those leaders do not represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not represent the slaughtered lamb who did not retaliate with violence, that did not 
seek to expand, ever expand its borders and to keep gobbling up other people groups in other uh, parts of the world and keep trying to establish more and more power and more and more weapons and more and more consumption of things. There is no nation that can say it is a Christian nation that has ever existed thus far. Can I get a witness on that one? Can I get an amen? I hope so. I hope so. But we nonetheless are tempted because certain leaders make us feel safe. Certain leaders make us feel like our interests will be taken care of. That's why some people are attracted to somebody like a Donald Trump because they feel like their interests that were lost are being seen again, that are being paid attention to, and that they're, they're gonna be okay. They're gonna be made safe. That's why some people uh, felt, like myself, really excited when Barack Obama was elected president. Finally, a man with some melanin in his skin who knows what it's like to grow up as a second-class citizen can affect some change. But you know what? As much as I love Barack Obama, as much as I appreciate his perspective personally, he still was dr drone striking people. The military budget was still ballooning under him. There were still uh, all types of non-Christian ethics taking place. And so I cannot wed, as, as tempting as it is, as easy as it, it feels sometimes to find my identity other some, under some other leader, political or otherwise, I am compromising a witness to a bigger vision of what God is like, of what God will be and how God is going to restore things, how he is going to make things right, how he has a bigger imagination for who and what this world is to be, and it is not predicated on violence. So these Christians, they were under enormous pressure, social, political, economic pressure to succumb. Who are they worshiping in this passage? Speaking of nonviolence, I want to go back a few verses be where, where who is there is first introduced in this chapter. Because John hears something different than what he sees. We're gonna have it on the screen here. Uh, same chapter, 15, verse, starting in verses four. John is weeping because in this symbolic story, there's a scroll that can't be opened. That's, that's a part of the story that that is taking place right now in this vision. And it starts with him weeping. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Stop right there. The elder says, see, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion. The root of David, 
King David. And this lion, this warrior king has triumphed. And he can do it. He can open this scroll. And when, when John looks, what does he see? He sees a lamb, a fluffy, sweet-looking lamb standing there looking as if it had been slain or slaughtered, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So John hears about the lion, the lion of Judah, the warrior with power to conquer and to smite and to destroy all the enemies. And what he sees is a slain lamb. This is how the lion conquers. He's he's not saying it was a lion and and it turned into a lamb. There's actually somehow both of these things present in this picture of Jesus, that there is both the power of a lion and and also the gentleness and the nonviolence of this standing alive, somehow slaughtered lamb. Maybe I don't hate Revelation after all. In his later years of public life, MLK Jr. would be reckoning with power and love and how do those things play out and have to work together for human flourishing. And he says, power without love is reckless and abusive. And, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. And we are given the image, the picture from John of the mighty lion and the slaughtered lamb. Now, interesting enough, the lion disappears from the script of Revelation after this. We remember it, it echoes, but it's replaced solely with the image of the slaughtered lamb as the primary way for us to relate to God. So through worship, John wants us to be witnesses to a different kind of God, a different kind of king, a different kind, a different kind of leader, a lion and a slain lamb. There has has not been a leader, a military conqueror like this ever in the world, one who conquered through power that manifested not in violence, but in love. This is the risen savior, as we read earlier, talking to Jesus, I mean, (laughs) talking to Peter. He's resurrected. Maybe Peter expects that the campaign's gonna start now. He's gonna mount the campaign. We're gonna go do all those things and take care of all the bad people in the world. He asks Peter, do you love me? And then he ends with a prophecy that Peter is gonna end up bound and going where he doesn't want to go because 
he loves Jesus. This is difficult. It's why some of you have not heard this preached before. It is difficult to unchain America or whatever country you love and live in from Jesus. Their priorities are not the same. I, I stand before you as the son of a man who fought in the Vietnam War, who grew up before segregation had legally ended, who had all types of trauma and difficulties in his life. And this is not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is one in which everyone can worship and know that there is power and love for them. So the significance that John wants us to see here is that the lamb that conquered, that is getting power and authority and wisdom and wealth, that is due all of these things is exactly because he was slain. He was the witness who would not stop witnessing. He was the witness who for our sakes, with the power that he had within himself, was willing to be killed. Not that he desired it. He was sweating blood in the book of Luke leading up to it. He, he wasn't trying to get killed. He didn't have suicidal tendencies. But he had to be the faithful witness to the kingdom of God, no matter what it cost him. And he knew always and, and everywhere that that was going to cost him at some point his life. I had some other things to say about this text, but I think it can wait because we're gonna be in Revelation for a few more weeks. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just conclude with this. It might sound like for me, it, this is easy to preach, but it is not. It might sound like I'm comfortable with these things, but I am not. And that's why I'm thankful, can't believe I'm saying this, for the book of Revelation. Because John knew exactly what it would feel like for us to compromise our witness. So this is, this is how I want us to end. I want you to think about the way or the ways that you feel like you might be compromising your witness to the lion who is the slain lamb of, of Jesus as savior in your life. What are the ways that you're acquiescing to our culture that makes it harder for people to see Jesus? Because that's, that's our hope. The ways that violence is perpetuated through words, through economics, through education, through political and military hegemony are antagonistic to the message of Jesus. So our witness to let other people see what this savior is like, as John is attempting to do here, is compromised 
if we fail to reflect on those things. This is why I pray so often that the comfortable get disturbed and those that are disturbed get comfort. I want you to think about that. Come to the table, ask for strength, ask for courage, ask for hope, ask for faith to be a more faithful witness to Jesus this next week in your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uncompromising vision of the kingdom of heaven among us, the new heaven and the new earth. Would you give us what we need to live out faithful lives? Amen.